Don't skip Phil and Kim with you delivering our latest episode of the World Nomads podcast. And we're discussing sustainable and ethical travel. Yeah, we took the podcast on the road, Phil, to a recent Travel Days conference featuring some of the most sustainable and ethical travel businesses in the market. Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Look, we're increasingly hearing about sustainable and ethical travel, and they kind of, you know, catchphrases, but what they actually mean... We'll have a go at it here. Loosely explained, sustainable tourism is the idea of uh, visiting somewhere and making a positive impact where on the environment and the people whilst you're there. So, you know, making sure they get something out of it as well as you get something out of it. And ethical travel is about being mindful of the impact that we have on places and people as we explore the world. I think you did good with that Thank definition. Not bad, well. is it? <laughs> uh, travel, by the way, is reportedly now the biggest industry in the world, bigger than oil. And one in nine jobs globally or something like that, I think is another figure, works in the travel and hospitality industry. It is huge. It is huge. So as we mentioned earlier, we will meet some of the most sustainable and ethical travel businesses in the market. We'll talk about volunteerism, the ethics of animal experiences. And as a bonus, this guy wasn't at the conference, but we meet a man spearheading a non-profit in the happiness and wellbeing movement. Our first guest is Daryl Wade. He's the uh, co-founder of Intrepid Travel. We've all heard heard that name. It's the world's largest small group adventure and travel company. Daryl, where did it all begin? Ooh, that's a long time ago. Um, so, even longer ago, uh, I went to university in Melbourne and uh, I met a guy on the very first day of orientation week um, who became a good friend and 10 years later we started Intrepid together. Uh, so, there's two of us and we were good mates for, you know, that 10 years and so I suppose um, because we'd been such good friends and we'd travelled uh, together at different times and um, got to know each other very well and we knew each other warts and all and we kind of thought, hmm, we can probably start a business together because we kind of know each other good and bad. Uh, so we did and um, so we weren't from the travel industry, knew nothing about the travel industry, um, so made lots of mistakes as a result of that um, but also got a few things right, right and I think because we didn't know much about the travel industry we kind of took a fresh look at what people actually wanted to do when they were travelling and so came up with a, uh, a way of travelling which at the time had never really been tried before and when we first kind of took the product, our trips out to the market, um, you know, we got a few looks as if to say, well, why would people want to travel like that? And, yeah, yeah. and so we were kind of thinking, well, either this is a good idea and because, you know, no one's tried it and, you know, it's, a, it's an idea waiting to happen or it's a really bad idea and we'll go broke. Yeah. Um, fortunately, <laughs> it was the former, not the latter. What do you mean by like that? Well, I guess, um, you know, we'd both done a lot of travel independently through Asia and, and so as a backpacker, you know, you hop on a train or a bus or, you know, a donkey cart or, or whatever's going and then when you uh, get someone, you might stay in a guest house or you might stay in a National Park Lodge or whatever. And that's fantastic. And, you know, we loved it at the time and still do love it, actually. But um, what we saw as the opportunity was people travelling in that kind of way, but if they only had one week or two weeks annual leave, we could kind of, because we knew what we were doing, we could travel really efficiently. Um, And so we could do in a couple of weeks what it would take a backpacker to do in four weeks. Not because we're rushing, but just because when we got off the train, we'd have a vehicle to meet us. Or when we wanted to go trekking, we already had our guide sorted. Or if we wanted to go to a national park, we had the boat already ready to go. We didn't have to wait for a group of people to, yeah. to get the boat to go. So, but, so for us, it seemed terribly logical to travel this way with a, you know, a small group of 10 people or so. Um, but when we told 
uh, our travel agent partners or what people who we hope to be partners, they'd said, what, you're going to travel using local public transport and stay in local accommodation? No one will ever want to do that. And we kind of thought, oh, why? We like it, you know. And so yeah. it was just not accepted at the time. You know, if you went travelling, you'd stay, you'd be in a 40-seat coach or, you know, in a ship or in a, stay in a resort hotel or whatever. And they were all the kind of things we hated. Yeah. I guess you wouldn't have sat down with a pen and paper and said we want to travel sustainably and ethically. No, no. Look, those two words probably didn't even enter our head, to be perfectly honest. I mean, within three or four years, I think we started to realise that um, that actually was a feature of what we were doing, but it was more a, um, a fringe benefit almost rather than actually in by design. And, um, you know, one of our uh, relatively early leaders, she was based in Borneo for a few years, uh, she came back for a, a meeting once and she was just saying, you know, what we do is really quite amazing in terms of the positive impact we have on local communities. And we just started to think about that a little bit more as to, you know, how is it that our form of tourism does indeed have positive impacts and some forms of tourism don't necessarily. And, and how can we kind of um, extend that and really get the the benefit of that, both for local community and for our travellers. It, it has to benefit everyone, otherwise it's not going to work, yeah. you know. When it all boils down, our, our travellers are, are going on holiday. You know, they don't want to be burdened with guilt or burdened with, um, you know, worthy kind of acts. They, they just want to have a great holiday. Um, but you can have a great holiday by travelling sustainably. These things aren't mutually exclusive. They, they actually work well together if you design a proper thing. Well, that's the whole thing about, um, you know, sustainable and responsible travel that I find, that it's not actually being led by any particular business or movement. No. It, it's businesses reacting to actually what the travellers want. Absolutely. They, they've all woken up to that and they're, yeah. they're demanding it. And, you know, from, you know, those businesses that do, like ours, um, you know, you get incredibly happy clients. Well, what do happy clients do? They want to book it with you again and they tell their friends and they tell their travel agents and, and that's how our business grew, grew from, from clients, not from us. I mean, we, we started with... Um, well, we put 10,000 bucks each into the business. And let me assure you, that was not enough to start the business. So, so it wasn't great. So if the, if the, the clients hadn't done the marketing for us, um, the business wouldn't have worked. Simple as that. Word of mouth. So yeah. you didn't set out to be sustainable and ethical. It was more a mindset. But now, how would you encourage people to travel sustainably or ethically? I guess, what is Intrepid doing to, to make sure that's the case? Um, well, well, there's kind of two sides, I think, to that question. So so one side is um, I don't really think it's us, up to us as a business to preach too much. You know, we inform clients absolutely about, you know, what the right and wrong thing is because people like to be informed and they like to be... Um, kind of educated, I guess, on some things they don't understand. You know, like wildlife tourism might be an example or carbon emissions is, is an example. Um, but people don't want to be hit over the head with a stick on stuff like this. You know, I go back to that point. People are on holiday. They want to have a great holiday and they, do, they want to do the right thing. Absolutely. Um, but the other side of the, the question is more internal in terms of us as a business. You know, how, what do we do to ensure uh, industry sustainability, to ensure that clients do have a better trip, to ensure that our impacts on um, 
local communities and the environment uh, are sound as we go. So, you know, we, we start by employing people who know a lot more about this than I do, <laughs> uh, like anything. Um, and, you know, so we've got a responsible business team uh, that work in the office um, and that they design practices and policies that are, are pretty much unseen by a client but ensures that we do the right thing on the ground. And that's, you know, everything from carbon emissions through to um, animal welfare policy, human rights policies and so forth. So you're doing the thinking for the traveller? Yeah, well, I think you've got to lead by example, don't you? You know, it's, it's all very well to get on a soapbox and, and preach and, you know, complain and all the rest of it, but I think you've really got to get your own house in order first. And, you know, if I can complain one thing about our, our industry, generally speaking, it is a little bit too passive on, on this issue as an industry. You know, sometimes you'll see people making lots of noise and whatnot about it, but, you know, have you really done your homework and have you actually got your... Uh, done the you know the real gritty hard yards at home to make sure that what you're doing is right. Yeah, oh, yeah well, tell us about that because uh, your car- the entire business is carbon neutral, carbon positive. Now have we yeah. attained that? Yeah. So We've been, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a long journey. How yeah. long have you got? Oh boy, you're silly. Well, no, no, no. I mean, like, was it hard? Look, I think I'm going to say no. Um, it's, a, it's a qualified no. <laughs> you <laughs> but, don't want to um, scare the horses, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of run you through the okay. early days of that journey just cause to, to fill yeah. you in. And um, I, I was um, just saying to someone before how um, it, it started for me as a, as a personal journey. And um, uh, uh, this was in about, I think it was late 2004, and we just won a fairly major award from the uh, World Tourism Travel Council and um, for our... Um, responsible tourism practices and you know I was feeling pretty pleased with ourselves you know we're so-called best in the world and all the rest of it and uh, I was heading off to uh, Botswana with my family for a holiday and um, at the airport I thought oh dear don't have anything to read and so I went with my eldest daughter and got a book which was Tim Flannery's The Weathermakers and uh, Sophie said so dad what's all this about I said well it's about climate change I don't really know much about it but apparently there's a bit of a an issue there's too much carbon in the atmosphere and blah 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 and she goes, oh, Dad, that sounds as boring as anything. Can't you get an interesting book, you know, like a, a novel or something like that? And anyway, so a week later, I remember I was under a, a tree in, in Botswana, you know, lovely scene, and I was about halfway through the book, and, and the penny dropped for me that um, not only is climate change a major problem, um, but that we as a company were contributing significantly to it. Because if you think about it, what a tour operator does, uh, and particularly a global one like us, we take people from one corner of the world to another corner of the world in order to have fun. And how do you do that? You get them in a plane and you, you emit huge amounts of carbon to get to your destination and then you travel around that destination using planes, trains and automobiles emitting more carbon. And so I guess I kind of thought, well, far be it for us to be seen as some kind of environmental... Um, hero or whatever, we're actually environmental vandals almost and, and I came back quite worried in fact, so got our leadership team together, said hey we've got to do something about this, first of all you've got to read this book uh, and then about that time or a bit, I think it's about six months later The Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore came out and I was kind of lucky enough to have a, a dinner with Al Gore and we talked about tourism and whatnot. and so we uh, made it our um, mission to, to get carbon neutral so for the next couple of years, we went out to measure all our 
um, emissions. And so that by that I mean you know every you know train ride in Thailand or tuk-tuks or uh, accommodation and whether the accommodation is um, air conditioned or fan driven is different carbon emissions. And so we did this across uh, about a thousand itineraries around the world. Um, and came up with a level we then started to reduce or manage those emissions. So in certain places we would take a flight out of a, an itinerary and use a vehicle if it wasn't too inconvenient for travellers. So we got that bit down and then finally we mitigated those emissions by offsetting the whole lot um, by uh, investing in wind, wind farms in Turkey. I remember that was a, an early one particularly. Um, and so we, four years later, after that journey started, uh, we got signed off by Ernst & Young, you know, the accountants as being carbon neutral. So we'd kind of done the work. And so that was 10 years ago now, so have been ever since. So um, Was yeah. Al Gore impressed? Uh, yeah, I've seen him a few times since then. And uh, yeah, look, I think he is. But, uh, you know, I, I guess he's got bigger things to talk about and be worried about than, than us. <laughs> well, again, Daryl, when you sat down with your mate at uni, you wouldn't have been talking about carbon offset either. We sure wouldn't have. <laughs> and had you have known that you would have a business that would be turning over $500 million, would you have finished that degree? <laughs> yeah, look, you know, I did finish the degree, but I, I, did, I just, I didn't think it did much for me. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, my, my partner's one of the few arguments we've ever had, actually. Uh, in fact, we've never had an argument at work, which is pretty amazing in 30 years. But um, one uh, fairly heated conversation we had one night, I remember, is whether, because we did the same course at uni, whether our commerce degree actually was useful for us, and I maintained it was completely <laughs> useless. Um, he maintained we learnt a lot. I'm not sure who was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Look. lovely to hear what you've got to say. Congratulations on the company. Congratulations on being carbon positive. Yeah, and thanks very much for having a chat with us. It's been great fun. Great to be here. Cheers. Well, Ben Pearson is campaign manager of World Animal Protection, and Ben says all over the world animals are suffering needlessly in their billions, including, as we know, and we hear stories almost daily in the travel industry and it's only getting worse. So I wanted to know why it seems so hard to convince people that animal experiences aren't always good experiences. I don't think it's hard because in most cases it really is just ignorance. People aren't aware of how wild animals suffer in these entertainment venues and once we start to explain it to them, the reality of what goes on, sometimes behind the scenes, such as the way elephants are trained, they they tend to realise, okay, that's not something that I should be involved in. Uh, The thing that works for us is that most people who go to these venues to see wild animals do it because they're animal lovers. You know, that's why they're there. And so when we expose the fact that, say, that elephant has gone through a brutal training process, that uh, the tiger that they just had a selfie with was separated from its mother as a young age uh, and will probably end up in a traditional medicine jar somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of its life, then they start to very quickly come around to the fact that they shouldn't be engaging in those kind of experiences. Why isn't there any accountability, though, (laughs) on the ground? It's, it's difficult in a country like Thailand. I mean, we're respectful of the fact that uh, in some cases, you know, the, the tourism industry is a very big earner. It's a very big earner of export dollars. Uh, we are working very hard with uh, venues in countries like Thailand and Sri Lanka to transition towards models which don't involve cruelty to the animals, but are still profitable and still provide jobs and income for the local communities. But we have frequently uh, lobbied the Thai government to improve standards for both elephants and tigers because Thailand is very much a hotspot for both of those species, um, we've had mixed success. So we think at the moment the answer really is travel companies not promoting or selling tickets to those venues and tourists just not going to them. They've done the right thing on elephant riding, they're not selling that, but we also need to get that next step. Okay, we have SeaWorld in Australia. It's one of the biggest dolphinariums in the world. Those poor animals, those intelligent, beautiful dolphins are in those small 
pool pools for 50 years or more. And it's completely unacceptable that they're treated that way. And no travel company that wants its brand associated with things like sustainability, as this current conference is talking about, should in any way be promoting or selling tickets to a venue which keeps dolphins in captivity. A lot of businesses will try to, um, you know, greenwash what they do in a way by uh, by purporting to be involved in conservancy in some way or other. How do you tell if that's legitimate or not? In most cases, it's just not. Uh, the dolphins that you see up at um, SeaWorld, for example, they were bred there. The most, most of them were bred there for the purposes of living their lives in a small pool to provide entertainment for tourists. There's no conservancy work there. Those dolphins also aren't endangered. The, the species up there is, is not under threat in the wild whatsoever. I will salute the fact that SeaWorld um, does do good work uh, rescuing uh, injured animals who've become stranded or hit by boats or things like that. They, they do good work on that, uh, and they've in many cases managed to get those animals back to a state where they can be released, and we'd certainly like to see them continue to do that work. Uh, but primarily the idea that these venues are really playing any meaningful role in the conservation of those species just isn't true. We've really got to go through a bit of a fundamental shift in the way we look at wild animals, okay? Wild animals are wild animals. They belong in the wild. They're not a photo prop for someone's selfie. It's not appropriate to have them in a little tank in the side of a cafe so that you can have a little look at them and maybe feed them on the half hour. They're not there to be ridden or swum with or any of those things whatsoever. They're wild animals. If you want to go and see a wild animal, there are plenty of ways you can do that. In the wild, you get a much more more you know, natural, normal experience of the animal and its behaviours, and you do so in a way which doesn't promote cruelty. So that's really what people need to be doing. One of our major campaign pushes is actually on the whole issue of exotic pets, uh, species like uh, African grey parrots. Uh, people love to have them. They're quite a prized status symbol in some can- uh, countries. They're even bred in Australia. What people don't know is that uh, these beautiful animals live in these big, rich family groupings in the wild. So they're taken from that, or bred away from that. They're kept in a small cage. They live for a years in this tiny cage. And so we see way too much of that going on with exotic animals being used as pets or entertainment props and the like, and it really has to stop. I met a Russian pop star that had an alligator as a pet. Mm. Wow. (laughs) It's just those two two things. No, wait a minute. Just Russian Russian pop pop star? star? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, in Vietnam. I met a Russian pop star in Vietnam who had a pet alligator. I was concentrating on the alligator for a moment and then I realised what was going on. (laughs) How cruel would it be funny? (laughs) Um, Ben, also in the news recently, a a German circus is now giving kids the experience of uh, the animal experience using holograms. Yeah, and that's so great, isn't it? Why not? I mean, there's this great myth that kids need to go and actually see a live animal in a zoo to feel some kind of attraction to it. And that's just not the case at all. I've got kids and I know that when they watch a David Attenborough documentary, they are just filled with wonder and amazement about these animals. Uh, that The point is often made that you think about what animal kids like the most, it's a dinosaur. They've certainly yeah. never seen a no. dinosaur in the wild no. or in the zoo and that's appropriate given the theme of this conference. So you don't need to see the physical animal in a cage to be filled with a sense of wonder and awe for that animal. Yeah, actually, the, the word zoo, I find them terribly sad. Mm. I've visited a few, but I always come away disappointed with the experience and feeling a little bit grubby. Um, How do we feel about zoos? Yeah, so... What I will say is a shout-out to the fact that uh, zoos like Taronga and Melbourne do a lot of really good work in conservation. We talk to them quite a bit. Um, the truth, of course, is that in the future we don't see zoos existing as they are now where a non-endangered species in a small enclosure is just not acceptable to us. So in the future you would have zoos where there's much more of an education focus. And, yes, if there were animals that are there as part of a kind of conservation breeding program, you know, we're open to that idea. But certainly the idea that you just have a whole lot of species that are not endangered 
endangered, being bred to live their lives in small enclosures is not something we support. I don't do enclosures anymore after I stepped on an endangered butterfly. Oh. I oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking it as an accident, right? Oh, totally it was an accident. <laughs> ben, you do great work and I think the message is getting across. Thanks great. so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me. And can you not judge me on the butterfly, okay? I've okay. learnt a lot since then. No enclosures for me. All right. Uh, look, just a quick pause right now to give ourselves a pat on the back here at World Nomads because um, just recently we won the Best Travel Safety Initiative uh, at World Nomads uh, for our travel safety section, which, you know, is pretty extensive. And the announcement it was made at the Global Youth Travel Awards uh, in Lisbon. So. Well done. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, look, we also reached out to ask you how you travel sustainably and ethically. And we got some answers. Helen says she minimises flying, uses public transport or a road two legs, avoids staying in accommodation which displaces local residents. So that means staying in small family-run hotels rather than big, large chains. She opts for fans instead of air conditioning, avoids large cruise boats, travels in small groups rather than en masse, eats local food, show some respect to the local uh, customs and religions, of course. Talks with local people. I love talking with local people. She, I, have a go at the local language. I've just remembered all my high school French recently <laughs> <laughs> by necessity and relish the fact that things just aren't like they are back at home. Oh, big tick, Helen, doing travel well. And Uli that works with us here, she's a scuba diver, and she says do an island stay instead of a liverboard. She says uh, she always does an island stay because there's always less packaging for food and you don't need fuel to run the thing and you can explore the local land area as well. When it comes to tour providers, she says go for small over large groups, family-owned business and local employees over big multinational operations, obviously. And she says she often gets in touch up front to check on certain things like the dive planning and safety standards, what species they'll be introduced to and what else to expect on the dives. Uh, she said it's good to check out their website, social media and others. Social proof is always very important, of course, because that uh, all gives a good indication about their practices. Like uh, diving practice, is someone standing on corals or touching the fish? Uh, what initiatives do they do, like cleanups and things like that? And fish feeding, do they? Uh, do you see the guide feeding the fish with chicken or bread? Oh, look, and we heard from Dave, who says in Europe he tries to take advantage of rail and sail deals, getting the train to a ferry port and then crossing over the, you know, to the other side of the ocean on a ferry, which is uh, leisurely and a bit exciting too. I agree with them. I like yeah. travelling on boats. It's good. And of course, it's uh, more sustainable. Good on you, Dave. Dave's a fan of buses as well. So all some great tips there. You can share yours at podcast at worldnomads.com. That's it. Okay, Karen Flanagan is Principal Advisor for Child Protection at Save the Children. She's also a founding member of Rethink Orphanage's Steering Group. Now, she works to make sure children are kept safe and protected from harm through all aspects of Save the Children's work across 120 countries. We checked in to see how that works exactly. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's What we're trying to do is uh, not make people feel bad about trying to do good. Yes. So so it's an awareness raising journey and most people when they realise the harms of institutional care on children, particularly when children have been taken away from their families for profit, um, are horrified. We make the assumption that all people want to help children but we just feel that the um, Rethink Orphanage's message has to um, 
reach people who are interested in doing the right things when they travel. Explain the, how it works for profit. It's a business model. There are unscrupulous people who realise that children can be commodified because Westerners um, and wealthy people want to give money to them, so they capitalise on that. So it's just another form of human trafficking. We know we have evidence from many countries where children are trafficked from families and communities into the so-called institutions and orphanages. Um, their identities, they're de-identified, they become what we call paper orphans, and they're told to say to the tourists that their parents are dead, and if, if they don't, they could be harmed or the parents could be harmed. So we've got extreme cases um, and evidence of those situations where children have been knowingly trafficked. Um, you know, their parents don't realise what's going to happen to them. They think they're going to a better life or a good education and then they never see or hear from them again. And um, a couple of the people in our group, Rethink Orphanages, had those experiences firsthand and realised that the orphanage they set out to run um, was doing a lot of harm and that the children actually had parents. So they set about reuniting them all and they've done that. Oh, fabulous. So, so what's the impact on the individual, on the, on the child? Well, the evidence is overwhelming that taking children away from family units is really bad for them. And even children who live in dysfunctional families um, still will do better than children who grow up in institutional care. We the see that in Australia. Is, absolutely. And why have we got a deinstitutionalisation policy? Because we know it's not good for children. So we would advocate foster care or local adoption um, for children who seriously cannot be looked after in their own families because it's too risky or harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to do the same in developing countries. We want to say um, if, if um, institutional care is not good enough for white children, it's certainly not good enough for you either. And we need to work with those governments, which is what I do in my role at Save the Children. I advocate with the policy and law reformers to get policies and laws enacted and resourced to protect children by not sending them to an institution, but by demanding and supporting families to take better care of their own children. So we want to do the same in developing countries. Is there any way that you know there's some sort of support given to those families as well so they've got a better choice? Yes, so we say first and foremost, stop looking to Australia, for example, because the Australian government is no longer funding aid as much as it used to do. We're saying to the governments in Indonesia, in Thailand, in Cambodia, these are your children. You need to do better for your children. Don't look to other countries to support you. We will technically support you, but we just don't have the dollars anymore. So my job is to go in and teach them the evidence about the harms of institutional care, help them rewrite their policies and their laws, and work with other local organisations to mobilise around these issues. But most importantly, educate parents in communities. And now we're getting the governments to to redirect the funding that they used to put into institutional care to family support and social protection. So we're trying to do all of those things. It's quite sophisticated, but I work at all those levels. Um, So we call it system strengthening. So national government reform um, right through to the local families, educating and empowering them. No family wants to send their children away. They think, or it's been marketed to them, that it's a good thing for your children. And we have to get that message out. What sort of success are you having? It must be making an impact. Of course, I have to believe that. And of course, I 
No, we are, but I haven't got a lot of hardcore evidence because we don't have a lot of funding to do proper um, research. Um, in my programming and work at Save the Children, we monitor and evaluate all our programs, and absolutely I can tell you that even just teaching people positive parenting, have fun with your children, don't use physical harsh discipline with them, do not send them away with people who offer you a better life um, because it it won't be. Children need to be with you. And if you're poor, let's advocate to get you a job locally. Let's tell the tourists that come to your community, or better still, you tell them what you need for a sustainable community. So we're empowering and enabling families, children, to know what's good for them for their own protection and well-being, and most importantly, what's sustainable for generations to come. So I know we're making a difference that way. What happens inside that orphanage once the tourists uh, uh, have left? Well, an, a, a, either another busload arrives in, and you know we have we have cases and stories of children being hugged, you know, by 20 strangers a day, and we have cases where children have been literally bussed from one organisation to another. To, make, to keep up with the demand of tourists that need this orphanage experience. Um, the new clothes, the new toys, the food that you've brought for them will inevitably end up in the orphanage operator's home. Or we even have cases where they've bought cars, built homes with the money that well-meaning foreigners have donated. So you need to do your due diligence if you're supporting any organisation. So if it's not bedded and linked into local government and accountability mechanisms, I would say don't support them. What happens when there's a use-by date? Where do the children go? What happens to them? Well, th th this, is, th this is why it needs to be so sensitively managed because the longer a child is kept away from their community, the less chance of reintegration there will be, either just by not having the knowledge of where to bring them back to or in awful cases where children have been you know, trafficked for sexual exploitation purposes, the community know what happened to them and they don't want them. Even their own parents reject them sometimes because they're like dirty, damaged goods, and it's it's horrific. And we've had to work so hard to say to communities, these children did not ask for that. It was done to them, and we have to look after them. Um, but yes, the older the children are, um, often they might end up on the street, they might end up um, having to do exploitative work, harmful labour, sex slaves, um, you name it, to survive, and they might end up on the street. And then the longer they're away, the less chance of a successful reunification. Um, so that's why we have to get in as early as possible. So as a traveller, you might have good intentions, but you need to do due diligence. Absolutely, always. It's like shopping around for the best flight deal. If you want one of these feel-good experiences, ask yourself, whose needs am I meeting here? Is it my need to feel good about myself? Or do I really believe I can make a difference that's sustainable and doing no harm to whether it's the environment, an animal or a child? Great question to ask yourself. Well said, Karen. Matt Gorn is the founder of cleantravel.org, which is a fantastic name, says what it is on the can. Matt, tell us more. So Clean Travel is two things. It's a marketplace for locally owned ethical tours and activities around the world. And it's also a platform for these locally owned organisations to manage the business and sell more. And, and locally owned is the way... That, locally owned is a that, big that, part of what we do. There's a, there's a very commonly quoted statistic from the UN around how 95% of dollars that are spent in the country leave the one that they're spent in. Our focus is on giving the local organisations the tools and access so that they can compete on a global market and reach these travellers directly. So how is that, that you can spend $100 but only five of it stays in, in, the, in the place that you're visiting? 
because if you're visiting a country, say you're going from Australia to Tanzania or whatever, sometimes, oftentimes, you're going with an Australian company, um, you're staying with in an interne- internationally owned hotel chain or eating in a restaurant where they might employ people locally, but the profits are leaving and going elsewhere. And so that's why we really focus on um, maintaining the same level of quality, same level of service, having a great time, but that the, not only the money, the people are being employed locally, but the profits are staying there to be reinvested. This is not a charity we're talking about. This is something that actually makes travel businesses work better. 100%, because I think sustainability has always been an issue in travel, but it's never been as much of a hot topic as it is now. A lot of travel brands are starting to really emphasise how sustainable they are. They're leading with that. It's part of the puzzle because sustainability is inherently part of having an authentic experience because to continue to have that authentic experience, you have to infuse that sustainability into everything you do. And by being a local organisation, naturally you're going to hire local people. There's a presumption, assumptions under there as well. Your suppliers are local your communities are local that you're kind of putting the money back into and it's a rip, ripple effect. Um, we spoke to Daryl Wade from Intrepid Travel and he said people don't really want to be or travellers don't really want to be hit over the head with the idea of sustainable travel or ethical travel. So how do you achieve that without telling people this is the way you should I be travelling? I couldn't agree more and I think um, people will never do things because it's the right thing to do. Our message is that doing things in this way, having that kind of a closer, better connection with people, it's just more enjoyable. It's more fun because not only do you get this amazing personal experience from you and you gain, but you have this intangible benefit and feel-good factor from knowing that you're really making a real contribution. Because it is quite possible to wake up in an internationally owned hotel and not know which city you're in. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's part of their appeal for so long, right? That it was, yeah. the, you know, McDonald's did it obviously famously well in terms of the standard of... of um, Big Macs are the same everywhere. And in, but in travel, often you're looking for the opposite. You're looking to travel tens of thousands of kilometres to see something differently. Would the three pillars of sustainable travel be, or the benefits be, economic, environmental and social? I would say economic, environmental and hopefully cultural. We want to make more money stay in the local country. That's what we're about. But it's not about the money per se. It's what the money gives to people, the freedom and the agency to make their own decisions. And often... In terms of the, con- the cultural conversations, they have control around what they, how they want to display it, how they want to showcase it, um, and having the freedom to do that. So cult- I'm from Ireland, as I'm sure you can tell. I'm very proud of my Irish culture. I play Irish music. I speak the Irish language. And I love seeing that in other cultures, that they're proud to share what they've learned. Because I strongly believe that humans are the same everywhere. But that little layer of culture is kind of the spice of life, and it makes travel what it is. Well, World Nomads has an office in Cork. In I was Ireland. just going to say, oh, shout out to all the nomads in Cork. In the Republic yeah. of Cork, as they like to call themselves. <laughs> do they? they do. They have a very, very independent mindset in oh, that part of the country. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So how do you measure the success then of clean travel? For us, we kind of, we don't want to complicate it too much. Sometimes I think in this space, people can kind of get very kind of bogged down in different metrics. A lot of times we look at simple things like when we start working with partners, we look at, we do a kind of a baseline survey. We see how much revenue they're getting per year, how many local people they're employing, the mix of men and women or people from kind of disadvantaged background. Again, where they're getting suppliers for. And then we pick a couple of those KPIs that make sense to those guys and we try and track them over time, every three to six months. Cool. Um, are you learning much from the conference? 
I'm learning that it's on the tip of everyone's tongue, sustainability, and that it's becoming a much more hot topic because it's people like Daryl and, and Intrepid, that was their differentiator for a long time about how sustainable they are. And now it's becoming the norm. And it's kind of now kicking on to what is the next step. I think for us, we're very much feeling that sustainability, it's great to have it as part of your division or an arm of your organization, but it should be in your blood. Yeah. It should be just part and parcel baked into what you do. The thing, the beautiful thing about travel is you spend, if you spend a lot of time overseas, naturally you develop an empathy for other people and you realize that, yeah, you go anywhere. You know, it's a commonly common quote, but hard work and skills and intelligence are equally distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. And that's where travel can have a really powerful force to do good. Thank you, Mac, and congratulations. Booking.com selected clean travel as a participant in their 2019 Sustainable Tourism Accelerator Program. Hey, Kim, have you ever heard of gross national happiness? Mm, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> yes, I have. When we launched our episode on Bhutan, who did some ground. Oh, how could work. I forget? Yeah, with the UN. And they passed a resolution on happiness, didn't they? Yeah, okay. Well, look, now I want you to meet Paul Rogers, who talks more about that and explains what his organisation, Planet Happiness, is about. Um, I've been a tourism planner for for the last uh, 20 years, advising governments in developing countries on how to develop uh, the tourism sector to get as much benefits in terms of income and employment and other benefits to uh, the environment and communities as, as possible. And I was fortunate to, um, uh, after working in Nepal, where I did a, a PhD on ecotourism in the Everest region, I was uh, very fortunate to be invited to Bhutan, um, where I, this was in 20, uh, 2002, and had a, um, a good introduction to, to gross national happiness and uh, alternative approaches to, to development that focus on happiness and well-being rather than uh, gross domestic product. Um, and over the years, as a, as a tourism planner and and um, going back to Bhutan again and again and understanding more about the way the, the country works and this philosophy of, of happiness and well-being. Um, in 2012, uh, the UN, uh, with the support of Bhutan, passed a resolution on happiness and well-being that was followed by a high-level meeting on happiness and, and well-being with government representatives from around the world speaking uh, to this agenda of happiness and well-being, stating what their countries were were doing in support of this agenda. And this was a really eye-opening um, meeting to understand, you know, what, what uh, is happening at a, at a very high level of government, the seriousness with which uh, happiness and well-being uh, agenda is being taken. And this is something that you don't normally read about in the, in the media. Um, and so through the networking that, that I, I, I did at that that meeting and looking to see how this agenda could move forward with the support of the tourism sector, if you if you like, um, we came up with this uh, project, uh, Planet Happiness, which um, is is basically about uh, deploying uh, a, a survey, uh, which we call the Happiness Index, which is based, it's a subjective measure of individual happiness and, and, and well-being. Um, 
that that a colleague uh, developed, uh, looking at the best practice of what uh, they have done in Bhutan to measure happiness, and looking at at what other countries are doing. So people can go online; they can take a, a survey, and in 15 minutes, it gives you your personal happiness score across 11 domains of of, of happiness. Um, you know how happy you are at work, your psychological well-being, your health, your satisfaction with the environment around you, social community networks. This this type of thing. Now, um, with the tourism agenda proceeding the way it is with many destinations around the world starting to suffer from over-tourism, it occurred to me that by deploying this survey in World Heritage sites, we could not just get the individual scorecard of, of you know, individuals and their um, interpretation of how happy and, uh, uh, they are. We could get a, a destination scorecard of the host host community. That was quite a long um, <laughs> But yeah, it's fascinating. Be- it's fascinating because, the, you know, it addresses so many of the problems that we're facing in, in, in the travel and tourism industry. Obviously, over-tourism is a problem. And places like Barcelona and Dubrovnik and Iceland are complaining about how tourism is having a, a bad effect. And you have to find that right balance between being allowed to develop tourism for your own economic benefit but it not ruining your, you know, cultural happiness. So I think this is an amazing tool for that. Yeah, it's, it, it's, um, I'm pretty excited with the whole thing. I've been doing this work for 20 years and looking, you know, to- tourism, if it's not, we all know that that uh, we need to reduce the environmental impact of tourism, particularly on national parks, and try and create models of tourism that support the conservation objectives. Um, but we also need to be increasingly mindful that tourism has to benefit the host community. And, and whilst the, the income and the employment is what creates the momentum for, for tourism to move forward, um, we, we now need to be looking at, at and, and finding new creative ways of ensuring that that tourism uh, delivers broader benefits to the host community so that you don't end up with a situation like you do in, in Venice where the residents start to, to move out of the of the area. We did speak about, um, you know, the happiness index when we did our episode on Bhutan as well, but what a fantastic way, if this could be integrated into all sorts of planning and development by government, not just tourism as well, but like taking into consideration the happiness of the people as important as the money. What a great step that would be. Yeah, I, I, to- I totally agree. Yeah, and the other thing that I'd, I think might be useful as well, um, these results are taken from the various sites are publicly available, is that right? Yeah. So as a traveller then, you can go and have a look at these and go, well, I can see this is a place that's under stress and I can either, you know, go somewhere else or travel in a different way yeah. and, and, and contribute to being the solution, not the problem if I go there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So responding to those comments, firstly, what's nice about the survey is that anybody can take it. And in 15 minutes, you get your one page summary scorecard, which compares your happiness to everybody else that's taken the survey. Um, then coming on to, to, to answer your, your question there, there, Phil. Yeah, 
what we will do with destinations, what we're starting to do with destinations is, is bring up their collective happiness scorecard for the destination. And as this project gains momentum, yeah, visitors will look at the happiness scores of host communities. They will see what interventions are being designed to increase the collective happiness of host communities. And it will give visitors the opportunity to engage in those programs and, and develop a, a closer relationship uh, with the host community. There will be individual programs that tourists can, in, can engage with. There'll be all sorts of opportunities to, um, to contribute, for tourists to contribute to in a more mindful way uh, to, to those host communities, which is what, well, this is the way that, that the sector is, is going, is, is, have, is, is visitors being more mindful and respectful and wanting to give something back to the communities they're visiting. We will share a link to the survey and Planet Happiness in show notes. I love it. Can't help but say that with a smile on your face. Next time you tune in, a return to our destination episodes as we explore Poland. And by the way, look out for our Responsible Travel Manifesto on worldnomads.com and we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. All right. See ya. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.